0: Welcome to Madame. Today's special guest is Lisa Sharon Harper, who is the founder and president of Freedom Road. Today she shares her new book, Fortune. In this episode, she shares about enslavement, indentured servants, race laws, white supremacy, forgiveness, Ubuntu, and so much more. Please stay tuned. Please join over 3,000 people on Homebrewed Christianity's online class. Christianity in Process. This is an online pop-up learning community with Dr. John Cobb and Dr. Trip Fuller. Make sure you read their books too. You can win a chance to get Cobb's Complete Works, which is valued at 1250 Please follow Homebrew Christianity as Dr. Fuller has other amazing weekly podcasts. Join him as he celebrates 14 amazing years of podcasting and has become the most listened-to theological podcast
1: in the world. This is what happens because the Wild Goose Festival happens. Dreams are born, minds are changed, spirits rearranged, and people. People leave with eyes and arms open to the whole wide, aching world, ready to make a difference. is what happens because the Wild Goose Festival happens.
0: Anna Luisa crafts high-quality jewelry pieces at very affordable prices. They're carbon-neutral from packaging to products. I really love this about Ana Luisa. Their designs are unique and will make you feel empowered, elegant, and at your finest. They have fair prices with jewelry starting at $39, and new jewelry collections are released every Friday. Go to shop.analuisa.com forward slash madang for Anna Luisa's buy one, get one 40% off sale. Free shipping and returns in the U.S. I know you'll love them. The 56th Annual International Convention for Rainbow Push Coalition will be held June 18 to twenty-second. Please attend this important conference. This year's theme is opening new economic markets. Get informed, get inspired, Get involved. Please become a member of Push and join 50,000 of your friends, families, and colleagues representing all specialties, ages, and industries. Take your seat at the table. Please join or donate to Rainbow Push today by going to www.rainbowpush.org.
1: For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com. This is Madang, an outdoor living room for guests to share their experiences and their work. I invite you to come in and stay for a while.
0: Welcome to Madang. Thank you so much for joining us. But we have a very special guest, Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a prolific speaker, writer, and activist. She is the founder and president of Freedom Road. She is the author of several books, including Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican or Democrat, and Left, Right, and Christ. She is a columnist at Sojourner's Magazine and an Auburn Theological Seminary senior fellow. Ms. Harper also has appeared on several uh, podcasts, radio, and TV. She writes extensively on Shalom and Governance immigration reform, healthcare reform, poverty, racial and gender justice, climate change, and transformative, transformational civic engagement. She has earned her master's degree in human rights from Columbia University and has served as Sojourner's chief church engagement officer. So today I'm so thrilled to have Lisa on Madang to talk about her latest book fortune how race broke my family and the world and how to repair
2: it all so welcome lisa thank you so much grace it is such a privilege to be in conversation with you thank you oh, so much for the it's, invitation it's
0: a privilege to have you it's such a joy and i just love your book mm-hmm. and you got wonderful endorsements um uh, sister mm-hmm. simone campbell says lisa sharon carper is a woman of faith who listens learns and responds with creativity, creativity to the world around her. As a pilgrim wow. in challenging times like the early disciples, she brings insight and wisdom to the quest for justice. I especially appreciate her engagement of the issues of race in our diverse society. What a wonderful endorsement, and I really, really, wow. loved, I, I really loved your book. But before we get into the book, just tell us about uh Freedom Road you founded it you're the president you're doing so many wonderful things so tell us tell
2: us the listeners what it is well thank you oh my gosh grace now i feel okay i really have to live up to this now it's <laughs> like a really glowing intro i really appreciate that thank you well let me say um freedom road was um uh, it started as a dream and the dream mm. was to be able to take as many people through the kinds of experiences that that shift and widen and change our worldview so that we might be able to achieve that beloved community that Dr. King talked about back in the, in the civil rights era. And so what we exist to do in order to get there, we, want, we realize we have to shrink the gap between our narratives. So that's what we exist to do is to shrink the narrative gap in our nation. And that's the gap that exists between the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and how we got here and the truth of how we actually got here. Um, And then also the stories, the gaps between our various stories, the people, different people groups tell about our origin as a nation and the gap in our faith story. So there's a large gap right now that people are discovering that it comes from the origins of of the text being in an um, Afro-Asiatic culture and, and geography but it's being told from the perspective of Western empire. And so there's a lot of meaning that has been dropped in the text, not understood, and a lot of relationship between powers that is not understood, that I think we need to shrink that gap as well. So we exist to do all of that. And we do that through training and consulting and coaching and forum design. So we design um, events and forums and through pilgrimage, and we started actually with the pilgrimage piece, and that I think is kind of our flagship thing we do, so we, we bring people through experiences that help to, to gain common understanding, common commitments, and leads to common action. Wow, I've seen many pictures on your pilgrimage, so how long are these pilgrimages that you take people on? Well, it depends on which one, I mean, because if it's a custom pilgrimage, it can be anywhere from half a day to, to a week to two weeks. Um, we have done as much as one week. If it's um, one of our stock pilgrimages, ones we do all the time, and like we know how to do this, the, the Ruby Wu pilgrimage is a pilgrimage through the story of women's empowerment in America. That's a, that's a, all together, it's three full days on the road. Um, wow. But then there's a, there's a, you know, fly-in day and a fly-out day and a lobby day, which is a part of that fly-out day. Um, And then there's another pilgrimage that we're doing this summer, actually, in a month. Oh my gosh, what? I mean, we have 200 people going on this pilgrimage. Yes, at one time, 200 people going on a pilgrimage that is called the Established 1619 Pilgrimage.
1: Wow. Um,
2: Yes.
0: Yes. Wow, 200 people. That is, I mean, yes. because I've seen your previous pilgrimages. Maybe there were like 10 or 20 people. Yeah, I can't 25, believe
2: 30. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh,
0: 25. 30. I can't
2: believe you can have 200. Yeah, I know. 20, 25, 30 <laughs> is our norm. But you, Trinity UCC, with Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, um, uh, Pastor Reverend, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III called me one time. And I was actually on a pilgrimage when he called me, which is really <laughs> ironic. I was I was visiting down, ironically, literally the land that the original um, African enslaved people were brought to in 1619. I was down in Hampton, Virginia, I mean, doing a pilgrimage at the time. And he called me and said, Lisa, we want to do a 1619 pilgrimage with you. Would you be up for that? And so this was literally back in 2019. Oh, and so we okay. had planned to do it in 2020 and it got postponed and then 2021 and that got postponed. So we are finally on this thing with 200 people. And it's not only Trinity, actually. We opened it up and we have people from Auburn Seminary coming and then another group and then um, a lot of individuals from all over the country.
0: Wow, that is amazing, Lisa. I can't believe it. And you also have like a podcast there. So tell us about your podcast for Freedom Road.
2: Yeah, so the Freedom Road podcast has been going almost as long as as the business has been, the consulting group has been going. Um, we started in January of 2018. Um, and it it exists to bring together movement leaders into conversation, but to lift the veil, because I, I was having all these conversations, I, I got to thinking, I'm having all of these really amazing conversations where I'm learning so much from movement leaders, simply because I happen to be in that space. I happen to be, you know, walking alongside, adding the heft of my own feet, you know, to the, to the walk, to the march. And so I get to be in on these conversations, but I was like, man, if more people could be in on these conversations, maybe we could actually do some educating, do some, some, some worldview shifting, some narrative gap shrinking. And so uh, we started the podcast, Freedom Road podcast. And every month we've come together with faith leaders who are a part of the movement for change, movement for justice. And we all have the same kind of conversations we would normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time you have microphones in your faces, in our faces, and you are listening in. And so that's, that's a Freedom Road podcast. We have another one, actually, we just launched. Um, And this is not, this is not a project of Freedom Road. It's a project that I'm a part of, but it's a collaboration of several different organizations, including Auburn, Trinity, and middle church and also faith in action. Um, so we have a podcast that we just launched called The Four. And it's the four, you can find us at four at the four.us. So the, oh, I'm sorry, that's wrong. The four.black. Okay. <laughs> so you can find us at the four.black. And um, it is an incredible group of uh, of faith leaders who are talking about issues that are affecting the African-American community. So it's for black Christian pastors and, and advocates and, um, and faith leaders. So myself, Otis Moss III, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, excuse me, um, uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis and Reverend um, Michael Ray Matthews. And so it's, it's hilarious. It is really funny and at okay. the same time goes really deep. So, yeah, I, hope I have to I check, check those, those out. out. Yeah. You do so much work. You got the
0: pilgrimage. You're the president of Freedom Road. You're, you're doing the podcast and your guests all over the place, too. You were a guest. <laughs> so how in the world did you find the time to write your fabulous new book, Fortune? Wow. How did you do
2: this? Wow. Well, Grace, thank you, first of all, for like, I feel so seen by you. Like, you're, feeling, you're really, truly tracking. Thank you. Um, it is. It's a lot. But I'll tell you what, Like in order to write Fortune, mm-hmm. I had to have a discipline, a weekly discipline of setting aside time for writing. And that's part of it. Literally, it's part of the reason why I decided to start another project under Freedom Road, which is our Global Writers Group. So we have a oh yeah, we were writing more more, more stuff, more stuff, more opportunities, right? Yeah. So, but it's because I had a need and I was like, uh-huh. you know what, I'm sure others have a need. And uh-huh. we're all in lockdown now. We started it in around April of 2020, uh-huh. right after lockdown. And and so, and, and it has just, it's still going, like we still meet, but I could not have written Fortune without the Global Writers Group. We come together every Saturday for, th- for, for four hours. We, we we're writing for three hours. 9am to 12pm 12, 12 Eastern Time. And then from 12 to one, each of us reads three minutes of what we wrote. And then we get one minute of feedback. So I got amazingly great feedback <laughs> from the group. And it just sharpened my writing and listening to their voices, listening to their, their writing over the course of two years. Um, really, my writing became better. That is amazing because I don't know how you can write for three blocks. If I set aside
0: three three hours, I would probably be googling and looking oh my god. <laughs> <That's hilarious. laughs> because that's how I write. I just take breaks all the time. So I don't know how, but that's great that you had this. Uh, I need
2: I need I need, I'm sorry, I need massive amounts of time oh. set aside because I do the same thing, but oh. in order to get in the groove, I need to yeah have that time to finally settle into the group. And then I'm gone. Then I'm like, I look up and six hours have gone by.
0: I think I need to try that because I can't get in the groove these days. So maybe I'll try that, shut everything down and put aside three hours or four hours.
2: Join the group. You should be, you should be joining the group. You should be there. (laughs) We want you there.
0: I'll think about it because that's that's (laughs) too much pressure on me to write.
2: (laughs) Oh no. Oh my gosh oh well but definitely come if you want definitely. okay yeah thank you so much
0: for the open invitation yeah. so I think like this book is epic before mm-hmm. I got into the book I knew it was about your family and I thought you know what I've always wanted to write about my family too but the depth and the history mm-hmm. and the information I was just blown away I don't know how you gathered so much information for the book because I don't think I would be able to do that the discipline that you had Mm -hmm. the the writing capacity like it is so well written Mm -hmm. so you named your book fortune and it's your seventh Mm great-grandmother and her teenage body absorbed the wrath of the first race gender and citizenship laws in this land that's what you wrote on page 34. Mm -hmm. So how did you decide you're going to do this because it is an epic book it is enormous it is there is just so much detail I don't know how you even kept up like how can you trace it all so tell us how you got started and why you got started and then how yeah so tell us how
2: yeah I mean it's actually a really great question Grace um 30 years ago I called my mom and I said mom I want to know who are we like tell me about the ancestors that you know about and it was in that context that I wrote my very first family tree. And so literally mm-hmm. it was 1991. So 31 years ago now. And um, so I, I still have it. It's actually sitting right over there. And so, oh. yeah, literally, <laughs> literally I still have that thing. And now, mm-hmm. now 31 years later, I have, we have about 1600 people that we have on our family tree. It is unbelievable. So it's, and, and I'll tell you, it was just, accelerated by light years with ancestry.com. They are not paying me to say that. It's just the truth. Um, And then also um, because I'm African-American, I hit that wall of the civil war. It's like a brick wall because they didn't really track our lives in any, um, any meaningful way and consistent way before um, abolition. So the way that you would be able to find your ancestors, you had to have you need to know their their name of their master, and then see if you can find their them listed on the slave schedule. But the slave schedule didn't have their names; it only had um, the age, the coloring, as in black, mulatto, or Indian, um, and uh, and then also the gender, male or female. So I, you know, it, that is what really took a whole long time. When things opened up for us, when we were able to trace back that far was when we discovered the possible link with fortune game McGee. And that was my mom. My mom is the one who discovered the fortune family. And that's because of amazing genealogical work that's been done on free black families um, in Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, North Carolina, and South Carolina. And these are like five of the original colonies, right? So, and slaveholding since the very beginning of their, of their colonial experience or almost the beginning. So when we discovered that there was a possible match there and then we began to go back kind of tracing from, we've traced from both sides from fortune forward and then from our fortune line backward, we realized there was a very likely match there and now DNA has begun to connect us. So we know there's a DNA cluster um we can't figure out exactly who but we know that we're we're in this cluster that is connected to the family that she comes from and so yeah so i when i realized that and began to read about fortune because this genealogist paul heinig has done all this work on on all the free families in that in the colonial free black families in the colonial era um i knew enough of her story to understand the context within which she was sitting, because I knew that the very first race laws in America were passed in 1662 in Virginia. She was born in 1687 in Maryland, the second colony ever. In 1662, um, they passed the very first race law and it was in response to the problem on the ground that they perceived, which was the problem of mixed race children, right? So these mixed race children were confusing the racial caste system that they had been developing through their social mores and then also through judicial rulings, but they had not legislated it yet. And this woman named Elizabeth Key took her case to court and she won. She she argued on the basis that English law says that citizenship comes through the line of the father and you cannot enslave another English citizen. And her father was an English citizen, therefore she should not be able to be enslaved. Oh, and by the way, he had her baptized and English law said, or English common law said you cannot enslave another Christian. So she won, she won her case. And after her, a bunch of other enslaved people whose daddies were English citizens because they raped their enslaved mothers, they began to say, wait a minute, I shouldn't be able to be enslaved either. So they took their cases to court and they won. So in 1662, this is about 12 years after Elizabeth Key won her her case, the House of Burgesses in Virginia, they looked up and they saw all these people kind of flooding off of their plantations. They were losing free labor because of this. So these law abiding lawmakers, what do they do? They changed the law. They decided to change where citizenship came from. No longer would it come through the line of the father as it did in English common law in this English colony. No, instead now they would turn to the law of partis, which is Roman law. Now somebody tell me what Roman, what Rome has to do with Virginia. I mean, come on, you know, I don't know. But they're grabbing on so oh, exactly they're, <laughs> yeah. they're grabbing for yeah. a way to keep yeah. their bottom line yeah a way to keep their bottom line so virginia went first in 1662 and maryland followed 2 years after and their perceived problem was the exact opposite it wasn't white men they had that problem but it wasn't the thing they were legislating against they were they were legislating against white women falling in love with and marrying enslaved black men and having children with them. And that was the situation that um, Fortune's mother and father were in. Her mother was an Ulster Scott woman and an injured servant who fell in love, didn't marry, but had Fortune out of wedlock with Sambo game. Um, Sambo is actually, it, it is an, um, a Senegalese name. It means second son. Right, so um, in 1664, the law that they passed in Maryland in order to keep white women from, um, from, from marrying enslaved black men um, and having their children was to say, if a white woman were to do that, she herself would be enslaved mm. and her children would be enslaved in perpetuity. And so they begged off of that by the time uh, by the time Fortune was born, literally six years before she was born, they reversed that and they said, "No, I'm sorry, never mind." And they didn't replace it. So Fortune likely was not enslaved and not indentured for the first 18 years of her life. She just lived free, or or, or at least she lived with one of her parents, but not herself indentured. But then the law changed again. And by the time she stood in court in 1705, the way that it read was this, if your mother is white, then you cannot be enslaved. But if your father is black in this same equation, you will definitely be indentured. Um, And Mm -hmm. if they were married, you'd be indentured for for 21 years. If they were not married, you'd be indentured for 31 years and they were not married. So fortune was... Um, was ordered to be indentured for until her her, until the age of 31
0: wow yeah like this is so much history like i learned so much from your book i don't know if you knew all this before you started the book all these laws it just amazes me how you know the white dominant society will do whatever they need to for their own gain and profit. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable because I don't know too much like I learned so much from your book so I was so grateful. But I know a bit more about the Asian history and so yeah. many of them came as indentured servants and and they were indentured for a long time. Yeah. So I always thought it was only Asians who were indentured but then oh, in your book wow, wow. yeah in your book yeah I realized that African Americans were too. So I yeah. can to explain this so?
2: 1619.
0: Yeah. yeah. So explain to the listeners, because you explained it very well in your book. So tell us about the indenturing and, and the and the enslavement and all that, okay. like, what the
2: difference is. Yeah. yeah. So, well, first of all, let me just say that the reason why I, why I wrote the book, why I said this has to be a book, not just my own family research, uh-huh. is because I realized that the story of fortune, her, her body is absorbing those very first race laws. Yeah. And, and and then you can begin to see the impact of those race laws through the generations And so I said, this is not just the story of my family. This is the story of America and race. So somebody has got to write this. Might as well be me and, you know, with my own family. So to answer your next question, um, indenture was actually a very common way that that Europe, and I think also in Africa, that they would would indenture servants and not just Africa, but Middle East, they would indenture servants um, to pay off debt. Right, or in Africa, what they would do is they would indenture people um, as like a prisoner of war, that kind of thing, but, but it was very different. They actually brought them into their family. They, they had rights, they could marry, they could have children. You know, it wasn't like it was slavery in, in America, but in Europe, indentured servitude was usually to pay off debt or to pay off a debt to society like a prison sentence. And it especially was something that they used in order to have Europeans pay off debt um, that they incurred by getting on a boat and coming over to America, usually to escape poverty. Right? So some rich person would sponsor their ride to America and then they would have to work off that debt through indentured service, usually for about three to seven years. Um, now, race and indenture began in 1619. So in 1619, Um, when those first um, Angolan Africans, um, 19 and odd is what they said, or 20 and odd rather, um, got off the ship, were were forced off the ship. Um, It was a, it was a warship. It's called um, the White Lion. And it had pirated them off of a slave ship that was headed to Mexico. (laughs) This is like, it literally blew my mind how global this is, right? So Uh Mexico had had slavery going on for a century before us, before the, the North America. And so they pirated those enslaved people off of the White Lion and brought them into the harbor at um, at Point Comfort, which is now Hampton, Virginia, which is right down the river from Jamestown. Jamestown always gets the credit, but it wasn't Jamestown, it was Hampton. Um, and so, and but they had a choice in that moment. They could have said, you know what, we're not into that. We're gonna send them back. They let them go back where they wanted to, where they came from. But they didn't, instead they decided, you know what, we're gonna exploit them for their labor and they indentured them. So indenture and enslavement in America kind of grew up side by side and more and more and more over the first century, the, the 1600s, um, enslavement began to take over until finally, by the end of, of the 7th, of the 18th century, um, it's all slavery. And, and indenture is really, not really a system they're using anymore by the end of the colonial era, and it's all race-based by that time as well. And that was a way for them um, to to be able to track people so that when they're when they run when they run away, they're easier to find, easier to catch, harder to blend in. So that's why they they went from indenturing white, black, and Native American people in the early 1600s through the well through the 1600s to enslaving black people and creating a whole class because with that first race law what they said was the children will become um, enslaved in perpetuity in other words forever so if your mother traces back to a black woman in virginia then you will be a slave and if your grandmother and all of your descendants after you will be enslaved that's how that's how race-based slavery was created so after the Civil War, when enslaved people were set free and abolition was um, finally came um, and they didn't know what to do with all of the Chinese men that they had brought in through the Burlingame Treaty, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for, the, for the Chinese, for the railroad. Yeah. Um, what did they do? They filled the slave cabins with, that had, we had just left with Chinese indentured servants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: So, yeah, thank you for, Uh, building that bridge and and giving us that history because that's so important and so much of this is not common knowledge it's not taught in our public schools or in high schools so that's why I find your book is so important even though you started with like your family tracing you brought in so much historical facts and data that it's such an important book for all of us to read and you also detailed a lot like one you wrote um, the American economy was built on a foundation exploited Blacksmiths and carpenters and accountants and engineers and doctors and architects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you said each one exploited each one brutalized. I just, you know, it's so painful for me to read this because this is our American history. And, you know, people say, who cares? That was so long ago. You know, people say that to brush it off. But it's so important to know the history so we know how to, you know, how to move forward and and or go, go even forward. You know, it's so brutal. Our whole history, the genocide, the enslavement, the indenturing, it is, it is so difficult. And it was really hard to read in your own family story. Mm. So do you want to say more about how it was exploitation and brutalization, colonialism, it was all this kind of boiled together. And I know that's what Freedom Road when you were describing Freedom Road, what your Mm. duties were, I thought, this is exactly what your book is doing right now. So yeah, Mm. tell us, uh, about all this and how to even move forward, I don't know if we even can at this point. It just—it's so painful
2: to read it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate that, and it's interesting. I've, that's been a really common response. Is this a hard book to read mm-hmm. because not because it's—it's it's actually you know I want to I want to say I took pains to make it um, an amazing ride, right? So you do feel like you're there, but it's hard because the history itself is painful, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that one thing we have to, or one one thing that that comes to mind for me that rises to the surface is a pattern that I saw. And throughout all the generations, what I found was that in every generation, laws were passed, structures were created, systems were followed, um, norms were created in, in the way that different people groups related to each other that at every single turn, the goal, the goal was not to crush or enslave or exploit. The goal was to establish, protect, and entrench white male dominance. Mm -hmm. That was the goal. And the way that they chose to do that, the way to do that, well, you can't really do it any other way than to squash and control and confine the image of God in everyone else and, and to exploit it. Yeah. And so what happened to us was not because you had a bunch of white people you know, wringing their hands and you know, twisting their, their, their mustaches saying, how can, we, how can we brutalize black people today? It was, you had a bunch of businessmen saying, how can we increase our bottom line today? Mm-hmm. And that is why we need to understand the history. Because those patterns are the same ones that are playing out today,
1: yeah,
2: and the laws, yeah. the the laws and structures, and even like everything, all of the all of the fights that we are having right now, um, in terms of our government, everything from immigration reform to abortion to um, to the question of whether or not we're going to have reparations to policing, all of these questions are all they all go back mm-hmm. to these questions of, um, uh. Uh, of, of how people, um, men of European descent decided that we should live together back in the 1700s and 1800s in ways that benefited them. Yeah. And many of those ways, like in a, in a meta sense, like hmm. we have the 13th, 14th and 15th amendment. So you can say, well, we've made progress. Yes, we have. <laughs> my family is no longer enslaved. The, the part of my family that wasn't is no longer enslaved right? That's progress. But in that 13th Amendment, in order to maintain Southern men's bottom lines, they included that clause that said you, we are, um, slavery will be abolished in America, except in the case of, uh, of, of prison. So prison now becomes the new um, plantation. Yeah. And literally it is the actual plantations that people just got set free from is where they're sent back. So that's peonage, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, In similar fashion in the 20th century, that was the turn of the 20th century. In the 20th century, early 20th century, we have the establishment of the Federal Housing Authority. Federal Housing, FHA loans, we all know about those, right? Uh The Federal Housing Authority, when they first established the authority in 1933, the, the algorithm, that the, that the writer of the law puts together is, and by the way, he's a segregationist, it automatically lessens the value of land if one black person lives anywhere in the community. If one black person lives in that community, the value of everyone's land goes down according to the federal algorithm that would determine how they would, how they would value land to offer home loans, right? So, yeah. right. So, and why did they do that? They did that to protect white men's dominance. So then you have, you know, community covenant, covenants to come out of that. You have redlining, you have segregation. Well, that's, we all, I mean, I used to look back and go, boy, those are some mean people. They don't wanna live around anybody. Well, it's not only that, it's actually economic. I just bought a home. If that was the law of the land, I mean, I would go against it, but basically what you have is you have, you have a, a river of momentum pushing communities to, to then try to protect the value of their land, right? By establishing these community covenants and redlining and all of that. So our own government established a practice that then set people African-American communities back like four generations in terms of wealth development. Um, not to mention the riots and the lynchings and and the civil and um, the uh, the peonage that literally drove us from land we had and stole our land in order to in order to acquire it. Yeah, so thank you uh, for that. And then your book also
0: talks about white supremacy. You write mm-hmm. a key strategy of white supremacy, and you've already touched on this before. It, you said a key strategy of white supremacy is to uh, dismember, warp and erase the memories of peoples of Eastern descent, or of European descent. Of European descent. So yeah. yeah, so say a bit about uh, white supremacy and also about whiteness, because you talk mm. about whiteness is a phantom, and I find that so interesting, I, I agree with you. So just, mm-hmm. it is such an important topic to understand all this history of what is yeah. happening and what is happening now. So can you just tell us what it is?
2: Yeah. Sure. So whiteness was established, um, really established in 1619 when they took those 20 and odd Angolans off of the ship. But it was really established in law in 1662. So when that, with that very first race law, right? Mm -hmm. And with that first race law, what they did was they began to distinguish between white indentured servants and black slavery, right? So slaves, slaves, people who were black were then deemed in not only in philosophy and then science, but now also in law, they were deemed as having been created to exercise um, uh, their skills and knowledge and brilliance on behalf of white wealth in order to grow white wealth. So whiteness was created in order to, um, let's put it this way, on American soil, what it did, how it functioned, was to bring together in coalition multiple, like many, many different ethnic groups that had been warring against each other on the continent of Europe and classes that had been warring against each other on the continent of Europe. And they brought it together under the banner of whiteness and in order to create dominance. So whiteness exists to create dominance on this continent, and wherever colonization landed, that was the very first thing they did. Wherever they did, wherever they landed, and when they colonized land, is they created a racial caste system with white being at the top. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like you know they didn't like um, on the on the census on the very first census 1790 they didn't have Irish American Scottish German Lithuanian even though all those people were here. Instead, they had white. And actually, that was the only category on the census. The only racial category on the very first census was white. The other one was slave. Isn't that something else? So it took 10 years, another decade, for them to get Black, slave, and free, right? So And then other. Um, but so whiteness is the, is the axis around which all law was developed. Um, and the antebellum period and and the post-colonial period. So whiteness equals ruler in America and ruling class. and And even if you're poor and you're white, at least you're white. Yeah. like that was the bargain. At least yeah. you have the rights of citizenship. You can own land. you can um you can appear in court to protect yourself. Um, and that's only if you're a male. So it was really, again, white men yeah wow so thank you for explaining all that it's so important and then so you
0: know your book isn't all negative you know all these negative things you know you do have a great part where you do talk about forgiveness so forgiveness for me has always been a difficult topic so how do you talk about forgiveness in light of all this horrific past how do we you know because you wrote it is a choice. An act of agency by survivors, most often brutalized through the erasure of agency. Mm -hmm. So how you know, as Christians, you know, Jesus always tells us to forgive, and but it is all it's always been hard for me. So Mm -hmm. what how do we do this? And yeah,
2: just how do we do it? (laughs) It's a a great question, Grace. I mean, I think first of all, let me just say um, forgiveness is not for for um, weak people. Forgiveness takes strength. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes strength of character, but it also takes strength of your gut. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also takes faith because what you have to have faith in when you forgive is that when you release the one who owes you, which is what forgiveness is, it is releasing the debt that one owes you, um, when you release them from the debt that they cannot repay. that's that's my argument in this book is to release people of European descent from the debt that is impossible to pay. Mm -hmm. For example, my great grandfather, Hiram Lawrence, Henry Lawrence is written about in one of those chapters, right? So chapter two, his son, Hiram, eventually moved to Philadelphia and and bought a whole block of homes. So Mm -hmm. I just love Hiram's story. He was so, and his like favorite, his favorite author was Daniel Webster because Daniel Webster um, was against the Indian removals. And, um, and, and Hiram talked about how part of his family was Native American. And so he bought a whole block of homes because in his family story, they had lost land to the Native American removals. And now he's like, I'm getting the land. So he's here, they have um, a block of homes that they leverage um, to, um, for, for people coming north, streaming north during the Great Migration. And in 19, or in the late 1950s, the city or state comes and they snatch that land by eminent domain, they claim it. So here's two times now in his family story, where he's lost land. And the thing is, there was a thriving black community in this community called Elmwood in Philadelphia. And it was legacy. This was a this was land that could have been passed down in our family. And it could have been worth so much, it could have paid for college educations It it could have I mean, land is everything, um, in a, especially in a capitalist system. Yeah. So what are you, wh- what are we? What am I going to do? That's never coming back. I can't demand that the city give back that Elmwood community to my family. That's never coming back. They, those people are dispersed forevermore. So if I were to demand of the city of Philadelphia or the state of Pennsylvania that they give back Elmwood, that community to me, I would die in a deficit. It would be me who actually spends my life with a hole in my, in my soul, feeling that the emptiness of the lack of something that should have been mine, but isn't. Mm-hmm. So if I decide to release them of the debt of that community, of bringing back that community, then the tie that bound me to my oppressor is actually cut. I can now say to my oppressor, go you can go now. I don't need you anymore. Go now.
0: So Powerful.
2: Right. And then I can turn to God. Mm -hmm. I can say, God, you are the one with cattle in a thousand hills. You are the one who changes the course of rivers and moves mountains. And you say, it is your good pleasure to give your children what they need. So God, it's time. Ante up. What I do need, God, is I do need that community. I do need um, legacy. My family needs the legacy that was stolen from us. So God, bring it. And you know mm-hmm. what? God can. Mm-hmm. And wow. God delights to. Uh-huh. So powerful, Lisa.
0: And, and one of the uh, quotes in your book is forgiveness cuts the ties between oppressed Mm-hmm. an oppressor I just yeah that is so powerful for me and it's something for all of us to kind of keep in our hearts and let it simmer that it cu- cuts the ties between oppressed and oppressor so thank mm-hmm. you so much
2: for that yeah, um, And I no, should say De- Archbishop Desmond Tutu uh-huh. is the one who actually I mean, I was saying it, but I didn't realize that he actually said it way before I did. Oh, so okay. I want to make sure that he gets back it. Uh-huh. Okay,
0: <laughs> wonderful. I'm so glad that all these important people have been saying it. So thank yeah, you yeah. for that reminder. And then, so another thing, oh, maybe tied to our... Um, which, is, um, you know, for me as an Asian American theologian, I use a lot of Asian terms. I use Chi and Chong and Han. So here mm-hmm. you use in the book, Ubuntu. And yeah. it's it's a very popular term. And I know Archbishop has used it too. So explain mm-hmm. to us how you use it and what it means and how we can use it even, you know, this concept in our
2: own life, so. So Ubuntu is a Swahili word that actually means, um, I am because we are, right? So we are all connected. In other words, um, there is no me without us. Yeah. There is no me without we. And so understanding Ubuntu, it actually, for me, it resonates a lot with the concept of Shalom that I wrote about in my last book, The Very Good Gospel. And you know, Shalom is really all about the radical connectedness between all things. Well, on the continent of Africa, they had that concept and that's what they called Ubuntu. So when we ask the question of why would we forgive, like, why Mm -hmm. would we even go there? And I'll tell you, the last chapter of my book was not originally forgiveness and the beloved community. It was originally going to be truth-telling, reparation, restitution. That was it. Mm -hmm. But I decided as I was, as I was entering into the restitution chapter, two things became clear. First, restitution is, is close enough to reparation that I could fold that into that chapter. And I did. Second. If we end with restitution, that doesn't necessarily bring the beloved community. Mm -hmm. Like we would have reparation, we would have restitution, but would we have healing? Would we have the the ability to heal from centuries of internalized white supremacy? Mm -hmm. Would um, Would we realize our own calls to exercise dominion? And would we be able to live alongside those who had just oppressed us for 500 years, 400 years, 300 years, depending on when your people came here, right? So, or were brought here. And so this is, that was a real critical question. And um, Donald Shriver is an amazing um, theologian who comes, who actually, was the former president of Union Theological Seminary. He wrote a really great book called An Ethic for Enemies. And I studied this book when I was in grad school at Columbia getting my my human rights degree. And I was thinking of it in an international context. I was thinking about it in the context of Croatia and Serbia and Bosnia, the Bosnian war in particular. And, but as I thought about it with regard to the, the plight of African-Americans on US soil who have never even had an apology um, for 246 years of enslavement and 90 years of Jim Crow and another 50, 60 years now of mass incarceration. We've never even had an apology. Um, how, How do we live alongside people who have not even apologized? And even if they did, and even if they offered reparations, how do we find that new balance of power between us? How do we not become the dominators? How do we not become what has been done to us? Mm -hmm. We can only get there through the release, the release of the the debt that cannot be repaid um, and the embrace of the call to the beloved community Wow. So thank you so much, Lisa, for spending this time with me
0: on my podcast, Madang, and for writing this such, it's a, such an important book. I hope that churches will read it. And also seminaries need to read it because it it's not, you know, I first thought it was just your family story, but it is so much more like the history the laws all this theology is weaved in it's so important you 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 bring in the bible too we didn't have time to go into that but it's such a wealth of information i don't know how you wrote it in the midst of all your other work that you're doing for uh freedom road and the pilgrimages and the podcasts and the guesting that you do so thank you so much for writing it. And I'm traveling, so I don't have a copy of the book to hold up, but you have it, right oh. but hold it up too. So we can all, it's a great feel too. It's a thick book, a lot of information. So thank you so much for writing it. And I just a thrill to have you on the podcast. I hope to see you in person one day and maybe even join one of your pilgrimages. Oh, that would be yeah. so wonderful,
2: Grace. <laughs> it yes. will be so much fun, yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I will see how my schedule goes. But thank you so much, Lisa. I know you're such a super busy woman, but thank you so much for taking this time to be on my podcast. Thank you, Grace. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. Please join over 3,000 people on Homebrewed Christianity's online class, Christianity in Process. This is an online pop-up learning community with Dr. John Cobb and Dr. Tripp Fuller. Make sure you read their books too. You can win a chance to get Cobb's Complete Works, which is valued at 1250 Please follow Homebrew Christianity as Dr. Fuller as other amazing weekly podcasts. Join him as he celebrates 14 amazing years of podcasting and has become the most listened-to theological podcast in the
1: world. This is what happens because the Wild Goose Festival happens. Dreams are born, minds are changed, spirits rearranged, and people. People leave with eyes and arms open to the whole wide, aching world, ready to make a difference. This is what happens because the Wild Goose Festival happens.
0: Ana Luisa crafts high quality jewelry pieces at very affordable prices. They're carbon neutral from packaging to products. I really love this about Ana Luisa. Their designs are unique and will make you feel empowered, elegant, and at your finest. They have fair prices with jewelry starting at $39 and new jewelry collections are released every Friday. Go to shop.analuisa.com forward slash for Ana Luisa's buy one, get one forty percent off sale. Free shipping and returns in the U.S. I know you'll love them. The 56th Annual International Convention for Rainbow Push Coalition will be held June 18 to twenty-second. Please attend this important conference. This year's theme is opening new economic markets. Get informed, get inspired, get involved. Please become a member of PUSH and join 50,000 of your friends, families, and colleagues, representing all specialties, ages, and industries. Take your seat at the table. Please join or donate to Rainbow Push today by going to www.rainbowpush.org.
1: Show your support and please order Invisible, available wherever books are sold. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com.